the notorious RBG has died, and Pastor Tim Keller creates his own notoriety. While Ginsburg's death creates a massive political opportunity to protect our preborn image bearers from dismemberment, Christian leaders like Keller are insisting that God doesn't really care all that much about your vote. We will examine what Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Pastor Timothy Keller have in common and what their unholy alliance means for life and liberty. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you for tuning in today. This is a very important episode because we are in a very propitious political moment and one that will either spell life and victory for many unborn children or continued death and slaughter for many more and for many more decades. But before we get into that, if you like this show, please give us a rating and review. We're getting a lot more people tuning in. Our downloads have nearly doubled, and we want to encourage people. We want to equip them, and we want to send them out ready to engage in the battle for life. So if you haven't given the show a rating and review, go give us five stars. It really helps. Leave a rating, let us, or a review rather, let us know what you think, and uh, share the episode with a friend or some of our evergreen episodes addressing kind of why everyone should be pro-life. And Hopefully that helps you have conversations to change the minds of people in your life. So the somewhat still breaking news is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died of cancer. Now, if you're listening to this show for the first time or you're not very involved in the political life and aspect of our country, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a Supreme Court justice. She was 87 years old. She had been battling uh, pancreas cancer for over 10 years. She was appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993, and she was the most radical leftist member of the Supreme Court, which just that reality is sort of sad, right? It just shows the politicization of our institutions and the Supreme Court of the judicial branch was only supposed to be for interpreting the Constitution, not for legislating your political philosophies. So what is the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? The left is going to tell you that she's a feminist slay queen, right? And I'll argue she's an ageist bigot. So who exactly is Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what is her legacy? Now, the left is going to insist that she is basically a modern deity, right? And in the last several years, there's been a whole line of products built around Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was dubbed the notorious RBG, sort of this gangster name, right? Notoriety, meaning you're famous for something bad because she's sort of they came to view her as sort of like the enemy of Trump and the the last leftist bulwark and seawall against the handmaid's tale of what the Republican Party would usher in if they got more judicial power, which, of course, is completely ridiculous. If any party is undermining our institutions and American ideals, it would be the left, who's literally threatening right now to pack the courts and add D.C. as a state so that they can gain more political power. But I'm going to argue that RBG's legacy was primarily ruling that babies can have their brains sucked out of their heads after slicing a hole into the back of their necks, all while their head still remains undelivered in their mother's vaginal canal, and the hitman works around the baby's kicking feet, which he already pulled out of the birth canal. That is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy, and that overshadows anything else she may have done good for women. What am I referring to? Well, in Stenberg versus Carhartt, a 2000 Supreme Court decision, Ruth Bader Ginsburg ruled with the majority in shooting down a Nebraska law that was going to ban partial birth abortions, right? Now, if you don't know what partial birth abortions are, luckily they're illegal now, but let me tell you what they were. A partial birth abortion was a late-term abortion in the second or third trimester in which you delivered a baby feet first forcibly until their head and shoulders were left in the birth canal. Then when an 80% delivered child is uh, flailing around with its legs out of its mother's birth canal, the abortionist takes scissors and sticks them into the back of the baby's neck 
then opens the scissors to create a hole, then sticks a suction catheter vacuum into the back of the head and sucks out the brains. It's basically a decapitation abortion. And this is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted to uphold by shooting down a Nebraska law that wanted to ban that form of abortion. So Ginsburg actually argued that part of the rights to life and liberty involved decapitating babies in the process of forced delivery. That, that was the language she used, right? Because our country was founded on the ideas of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or the right of property. So part of life and liberty involved the right to kill a baby in this manner. And the majority argued, who ruled in this decision, that the reason they blocked the law from going into effect in Nebraska was because it didn't allow for a health exception for the mother, a health exception, meaning that, well, maybe, maybe something would be going on with the mother's health such that we would have to kill a baby in that way in the second or third trimester. And plus, the assumption is, is that the child has no value, right? Because if the child has an equal value to the mother, then any health risks to the mother do not become justifiable to kill the child. Now, one could argue, what if there's a life threat to the mother? Well, that's not what the court argued. They said a health risk to the mother. So they wanted a health exception. But however, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, the two cases that make up federal abortion law, had already articulated the right to an abortion at any point during the pregnancy. If the doctor could agree that the abortion was necessary for his patient's mental health. So the courts had already defined health so broadly, you could drive a Mack truck through it. So Ginsburg was lying by insinuating that, well, you know, had the health exception been in place in the partial birth abortion ban, then perhaps I would have supported ending that particular type of abortion. When in reality, the precedent of abortion cases would allow for, quote unquote, health exceptions anyways. So the whole thing was a sham. The whole thing was a farce. Three years later, we end up do banning uh, partial birth abortions on a federal level in 2003. And then in 2007, in a Supreme Court decision called Gon Gonzalez versus Carhart, the justices were determining whether they were going to uphold the ban. So there was a legal threat to the ban on partial birth abortions such that the court was determining whether they were going to uphold the ban or reverse the ban. And in reversing the ban, they would be re-legalizing partial birth abortions. Now, that didn't happen. And luckily, the ban on partial birth abortion still stands. But in 2007, Ginsburg voted to, of course, overturn the ban on partial birth abortion. So re-legalizing baby decapitations. That's what she was ruling on. And I'm seeing a lot of pro-lifers and squishy conservatives saying things like, well, you know, Ginsburg and I disagreed on a lot, but man, she was, she was quite the woman, huh? We, we disagreed on a lot, but she, she did a lot of good stuff, didn't she? And I'm grateful for her life. Well, I will not participate in this whitewashing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. She was brilliant, but she was a wicked woman whose jurisprudence was identical to Roger B. Taney. Now, who's Roger B. Taney? Well, he was on the Supreme Court and authored the decision known as Dred Scott, right, which denied personhood to African-Americans and said even if their owners moved or took them to a free state, they still were not free. Why? Because blacks aren't persons and they're pieces of property, right? The same way that the Democratic Party views unborn children today. I'm arguing that her jurisprudence is identical to Roger B. Taney because they both believed that the government could deny rights of personhood to an entire class of human beings and then murder or mistreat them. Taney and Ginsburg were both more than happy to weaponize their judicial power to enshrine and protect state-sanctioned bigotry. Both jurists believe that some human beings are inferior and therefore become merely property of those who have set themselves above them. Slaves, the property of plantation owners whose land they lived on and babies, the property, the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. As Scott Klusendorf perfectly said once, in the past, we used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and ethnicity, and we still do at times. But today, with elective abortion, we discriminate on the basis of size, level of development, location, and dependency. We've simply swapped one form of bigotry for another, and that's exactly right. Now, some people will say, well, Seth, look what she accomplished for women's rights. You know, don't whitewash her legacy because of a couple decisions on abortion. And of course, there were more that we don't have time to get to all of her rulings on abortion, but those were the most heinous. Look what she did. You know, she may have, you know, sanctioned the slaughter of unborn women, but look what she did for born women's rights. Well, not all women's rights, of course, right? Just the ones that are already born. However, anything she accomplished for women is overshadowed by the reality that she hated unborn women and unborn men. She was a rabid bigot who viewed and treated babies in the same way her party once viewed and treated blacks. 
Advancing the civil rights of born women means virtually nothing if you advance and sanction the genocide of unborn women. Now, no doubt my critics will abhor this comparison as they always do, right? The comparison between abortion and slavery. And they claim that, well, the two were not the same. I agree. Murdering millions of innocent human beings is significantly worse than enslaving millions of them. However, they will insist that slavery was wicked because skin color has no bearing on human nature and human rights. So dehumanizing blacks based on characteristics they have no control over is wrong. But abortion, they claim, is different, right? Because while blacks are obviously persons, unborn blobs of tissue obviously are not. Now, blacks being obviously persons is obvious today and true because we've self-corrected as a society, but it was not obviously true to vast swaths of Americans in the 19th century, right? Who literally believed that blacks were not persons. That's how powerful bigotry is. It blinds you to obvious truths about human nature. What my critics fail or refuse to see is that abortion is wrong for the same reason that slavery is wrong. In each case, real human beings are denied full personhood and rights as their oppressors insist that these human beings they're so vastly different from us that only a rube would believe them equal. Pro-choice advocates or ageists today are blindly making the same mistake that racists did then. They accept and defend premises that would justify their own enslavement. Here's what I mean by that, okay? As Abraham Lincoln pointed out in his defense of abolitionism and the equal value of blacks and whites is that if skin color is grounded, grounds our personhood and rights, then anyone with a fairer skin than the plantation owner could enslave him. In other words, if personhood rests on skin color and skin color comes in varying degrees, then it follows that personhood comes in varying degrees. Similarly, in accepting the institution of abortion on demand, And the premises that make it plausible in the first place, namely that, well, the unborn are so different from us. The abortion advocate is also putting into place premises that will justify her own enslavement, right? Because according to the abortion advocate, the differences in size, level of development, location and dependency between the blob of tissue and herself are so vast that it is borderline insane to suggest that there is any human equality between her and the fetus. But what she fails to grasp is that unborn children differ from us in the same ways that we differ from one another, right? Born people all differ in their size, development, location, and dependency. So if we can kill unborn children for being smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, and more dependent than their mothers, then can I kill you for being smaller, less developed, located elsewhere, and more dependent than myself? (laughs) If the answer is no then those differences cannot be used to justify the killing of the unborn because they're also a human being. So the arguments used to justify the taking of unborn human life work equally well to justify killing people outside the womb. In short, the right to kill unborn human beings cannot be confined to the womb. So the only way to maintain human equality and protect our own rights from the oppression of modern jurists like Roger B. Taney and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is to ground human equality in our shared human nature, which began a conception. And that would have to include the unborn child. So what does this mean in the light of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and how ought we to view her legacy? Well, friends, it means that morally speaking, Ginsburg is no different than Roger B. Taney. They both believed the American ideals of natural rights, equality before the law, and a government created to protect both were just punchlines in a bad joke. They both believed not all humans are persons. And so therefore, it was their sacred duty as our enlightened betters to legislate on matters that peasants such as ourselves couldn't resolve. According to Ginsburg and Taney, who is and is not a human being with rights must be decided by those with political power. Natural rights be damned. Jurists who rule, like Taney, that the saying all men are created equal was never intended to apply to blacks, are evil and ought not to be honored. 
Justice like Ginsburg, who argue that part of the rights to life and liberty actually involve pulling a baby out of their mother's wombs by their legs until only head and shoulders are left undelivered and then stabbing scissors in the back of their neck to create a hole so you can suction out their brains with a vacuum are degenerates whose legacy should only be remembered as bigotry. Call me crazy, but I don't believe we should glorify or honor the legacy of anyone who uses the power of the highest court in the land to deny personhood to millions of our fellow human beings whose botched jurisprudence and decisions directly led to the abuse or slaughter of innocence. So that's what I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the only tragedy is that I have no reason to believe that she repented before she met the creator of the universe who entered human history as an unborn child who Ruth Bader Ginsburg spent her entire life waging war on. I have no reason to believe that she repented, but I hope that she did, and I hope that I'm wrong. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death opens up a slot for another Trump-appointed justice who we hope would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And at the time of this recording, Amy Coney Barrett seems to be the president's favored pick. She's a Catholic, mom of seven, two of whom she adopted, and all that we from that we know about her, she seems to be very, very pro-life. And the significance of this moment is not lost on the pro-life movement. While Trump hasn't done as much as we like or would hope for the unborn, he's certainly been the most pro-life president in American history. And if we ever want to see personhood and the protections of the law restored to the pre-born, we must get another one or two Supreme Court justices who will respect their only job description. Interpret the Constitution and don't legislate from the bench. And that means that re-electing President Trump is vital to the protection of life because we know what the other side will do, don't we? We know what they would do with political power, and we know what they would do with their appointees to the Supreme Court. A bunch of people who have the same jurisprudence as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And be, when you combine Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they have promised to codify Roe v. Wade into federal law, to institute pre-clearance guidelines before pro-life states can pass pro-life laws. They promised or threatened to add four more Supreme Court justices to abolish the filibuster so those pesky pro-life Republicans can't keep them from passing a crazy abortion laws, to abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps taxpayer dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements and has been responsible for saving over 2 million babies and increasing the tax funding of Planned Parenthood by the millions. That's what the other side would do. And yet this propitious political moment in the fight over life and whether we can keep killing a million babies a year is completely lost on woke pastors like Tim Keller. And we're going to get to the wokeification of Tim Keller in just one second. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then consider becoming a patron of the show. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and pick one of our nine tiers, I think as low as five or $10 a month up to 300 for those of you who have the means. And it's all about helping us expand the production value of the show, the number of episodes that we do and the kind of content we create because we want to take this to the streets and start engaging with the common man and woman who probably have never met a pro-life speaker who knows how to persuasively defend the pro-life position. We want to engage with those people and encourage them to change their minds on this issue. So if you want to help us and you want to support this show and then get access to perks that you can only get by supporting the show in one of our tiers, please do that. Patreon.com forward slash unaborted. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, while we don't celebrate it, has presented this propitious political moment and opportunity to the pro-life movement and to those who uh, don't hold a jurisprudence completely antithetical to the American founding for us to begin putting people on that highest court who understand their only job description, which is to interpret the Constitution. And of course, there is no constitutional right to an abortion, right? Oh, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the privacy clause, right? Well, unless you want to argue that parents should have the right to kill their toddlers in the privacy of their own homes, 
then you can't accept the premise that there's a constitutional right to an abortion because we have human rights. We have human equality, right? This is why this is how Lincoln was successful in fighting slavery and making it illegal was by saying that any differences between the slave and the white man that you're using to justify slavery are differences between all white men. If if personhood is based on skin color, which comes in varying degrees, then it follows that personhood comes in varying degrees. And the same debate happens over abortion. Any difference that you use to justify abortion because the unborn child is different from us is a difference that we find between all born people. So those can't be the arguments we use to justify abortion. However, all of these realities, morally, spiritually, and politically speaking, are lost on woke pastors now, like Pastor Timothy Keller, whose many books I've read and who has done incredible things for the proclamation of the gospel in America. But it seems like he is in the school of wokeism and is adopting premises that are completely antithetical to not just American exceptionalism, but to the Judeo-Christian worldview, right? To the biblical truths of the Imago Dei. So what do I mean by this, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering why I would ever choose to create a comparison between Tim Keller and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, for those who are unfamiliar with who Pastor Tim Keller is, he's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, where he has been, I think, for 30 years or more, founded the church, uh, but had preached and had a pastoral career even before that, and has been called the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century, and has uh, defended the Christian worldview from sort of a theological and apologetics uh, perspective um, for a long time and in some incredible books. And I'm not discounting all of that. However, the genocide of baby image bearers has never bothered Keller enough to preach out against it, disciple his church to be pro-life and help end abortion. If you do a word search for abortion in Tim Keller's sermons, I don't believe you'll find one. I've done this. I cannot find it. Okay. We're talking about 30 years at the church in New York City and years before that at different churches. Now, there's a couple things you can find where he addresses it, but never in a sermon, never from the pulpit. But don't worry. He tells us why clerical silence on child sacrifice is actually a good thing. World Magazine ran a piece in 2014 by Joe Maxwell entitled Still Silent Shepherds. Still Silent Shepherds. And here's what he says. In New York City several years ago, an Ivy League graduate approached Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church to thank him for not focusing on abortion from his pulpit. She added, if I had seen any literature or reference to the pro-life movement, I would not have stayed through the first service. She was a lawyer, a resident of Manhattan, and an active ACLU member, right? The greatest legal, en legal enemy to the unborn. She also had had three abortions. Eventually, the woman converted to Christianity under Keller's influence. Later, she approached him asking, do you think abortion is wrong? Keller said, yes. She replied, I am coming to see that maybe there is something wrong with it. To Keller, this story illustrates the right approach to biblical preaching at Redeemer Presbyterian Church concerning controversial sin areas. He wrote in Leadership Journal in 1999, quote, pushing moral behaviors before we lift up Christ is religion. Jesus himself warned us to be wary of it and not to mistake a call for moral virtue for the good news of God's salvation. Okay, so there you have it. Now, by those same standards, Christian churches and pastors should not have condemned the institution of slavery and those involved in it because then you'd be pushing moral behaviors, namely don't buy human beings and whip them. You'd be pushing moral behaviors before lifting up Christ, which is absolutely insane. Obviously, you can do both of those things simultaneously, but this is how Keller views the role of the pulpit when it pertains to national genocide, to the murder of one million baby image bearers every year, which is that we don't talk about it. We just lead people to Jesus, right? Like he did with this lawyer. We just lead them to Jesus. And then when they come become convicted, then we'll talk about it one-on-one, -on -one. but never from the pulpit. No, never that. And then just recently on September 16th in a Facebook post, Tim Keller took his... I mean, botched theology to new levels by encouraging Christians that they have, quote, liberty of conscience to do whatever they want politically in 2020. That's his language. Liberty of conscience, meaning you can do whatever you want. There's no Christian standard such that, that you should abide by in your voting. That, that's what he's saying. Okay, but to do justice to his words, I'm going to read you the entire Facebook post from September 16th. 
And this goes along with what he said prior in the piece we just covered from World Magazine, which is basically that God just doesn't really care about your vote that much. You can kind of do whatever you want. Here's what he said. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity, may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded, and therefore we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. And here we go. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many, many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means, listen, when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Keller says, Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. Okay? So there it is. I, I've read you the, his post in its entirety. The summary is that God doesn't give two bleeps about how you vote. It doesn't matter. You have freedom, brother. Liberty of conscience. It doesn't matter that one party is behind the slaughter of a million baby image bearers a year in the location that Christ entered human history, a womb. It, none of that matters. Because you have freedom, brother, right? It was for freedom that Christ sets you free. So you can just pick your political parties like you pick your favorite flavor of ice cream. According to Keller's reasoning, supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s must have been acceptable, right? Because the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in abolishing slavery. Furthermore, according to Keller's reasoning, supporting Hitler and his regime must have been acceptable to German Christians in the 1940s because, brother, you have liberty of conscience, politically speaking, don't you know? Now, if Keller rejects these suggestions as permissible for the Christian, which I'm sure he does, but he is pro-life, then his own argument is rendered false. Why? Because abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. They legally denied rights of personhood to image bearers of God while dehumanizing them to justify their mistreatment. In short, Keller apparently believes that clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. And abortion is child sacrifice, isn't it? Because Satan doesn't care the name of the God that you sacrifice your children to. You can call him Molech. Baal, or you can call him the pagan gods of convenience, money, education, and career well-being. As long as you continue to shove children down his throat, he'll be satisfied. So Keller then challenges Christians to show him, right, where in the Bible it allows us to tell our brothers and sisters how they can or cannot vote. All right. Well, very well, Tim. Here we go. The Bible commands us to, and I'm quoting from scripture, hold back those staggering towards slaughter. That's from Proverbs 24. To speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. That's from Proverbs 31.8. And to seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile. Right? God's words to the Israelites. So it is a privilege and freedom, but with much blood, that Christians in America are able to speak up for those who cannot within a political system that gives power to the people. To refuse to use that form of speech to end state-sanctioned slaughter is itself wrong. For as Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us, who was fighting his own genocidal country, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. Like the Israelites, we as Christians are exiles in this land. For scripture tells us that what? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So like the Israelites, we should seek the good of the city or country that we are exiled in. But you cannot seek the good of America while neglecting to use your political voice to end the state-sanctioned genocide of abortion, or worse yet, use your voice to empower and expand the party committed to that genocide, the Democratic Party, which Keller says is fine. You have liberty of conscience. When it comes to voting and political alliances, you have liberty of conscience. He's saying you can use your voice, your political voice and vote, to expand the party committed to the genocide of baby image bearers. Obviously, Keller is hopelessly confused to create a moral equivalency between today's two parties. In defending the Christian's political freedom of conscience, what Tim Keller is really telling us 
is that God doesn't really care how you vote. Your vote isn't all that important to him. Now, forget about the part that uh, the famous quote by the theologian that there's not an area on this world where God does not scream mine, right? Forget the fact that you're supposed to preach the full counsel of God. Forget the fact that every area of our life is supposed to be sacrificed to God as a fragrant offering for his use and his glory. Apparently not your vote. According to Tim Keller, that has no bearing on the Christian life. But I assure you, friends, that a vote that can help end the genocide of baby image bearers is a vote God cares deeply about. Now, back to whether we can tell people who to vote for or not vote for, right? Because that's what Keller says. Well, what is the best way to love your neighbor, which is the second greatest commandment? What's the best way to love your neighbor if it is legal to intentionally kill that class of neighbors? (laughs) What is the best way to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves in a country legalizing the slaughter of those innocent speechless victims? Well, I would say, and I would think you would agree with me, that while there are many ways to love that class of neighbors, the best way and the most important way is to is to make it illegal to kill that class of neighbors, right? To stop the slaughter and ensure that legal protections were granted to that class of victims. And what's the way we do that in America? Through our political voice. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Well, the way we do that in America is through our political voice, our vote. So can we accomplish that by voting for the very party responsible for, committed to, and profiting off of the killing? Anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would have to tell you no. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who they cannot vote for. But scripture also tells us that Quote, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. If we have the ability to use our power and voice to end the genocide of innocence, we should do that. That is the right thing to do. If we're commanded to speak up for those who cannot, but we refuse to use the only voice we have that can actually stop the genocide in the first place, our political voice, then we are in sin. If anyone tells you otherwise, simply ask them if they would defend not using their political voice to help end slavery in 1850. And their answer will tell you everything that you need to know, won't it? That they don't really believe the unborn or full persons under the law that deserve the same protections as born people. Now, it goes without saying that there is only one political party and one politician this November that will allow Christians to accomplish that, quote, best way to love our pre-born neighbors making it illegal to kill them and enshrining their legal protections. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible does allow us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for. And those who say otherwise are, as Hadley Arks once said, simply, quote, not possessed of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Now, are you ready for a hilarity of previously unknown heights? Are you ready for hypocrisy that will take you to the stars? Keller has written elsewhere that it was wrong, morally wrong of Christians, ready, to refuse to be political in the 19th century on the issue of slavery. (laughs) Wrap your mind around that one. But it's not wrong to refuse to be political in 2020 on the issue of abortion. In fact, brother, you have liberty of conscience. What do I mean? Well, in September of 2018, in the New York Times, Tim Keller wrote an op-ed called, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? They don't. And this is a very popular article. It goes around every election cycle. People just love it. They just eat it up. And and not just presidential, of course, because it was written in 2018, but uh, but in gubernatorial as well. And here's what he said. Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement ready, are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we now would call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political, end quote, from Tim Keller. He is full on condemning the refusal to get political in the 19th century to end slavery while telling you now, Christian, that it's okay to not be political or to be political for the party of abortion because you have liberty of conscience. And does anyone see any double standards here? I think the school of wokeism is doing bad things to the theology of Pastor Tim Keller. Let me translate that paragraph back to you 
and just put in his name in the word abortion instead of slavery. Ready? Tim Keller cannot pretend to transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. When pastors like Tim Keller don't speak out against abortion because that is called getting political, he is actually supporting abortion by doing so. To not be political is to be political. Something tells me Pastor Tim Keller wouldn't like those words being read back to him on his complicity in the abortion of the lambs. However, while the blood of babies has never run deep enough or hot enough to warrant Keller's intervention, the mistreatment of black Americans that doesn't end in tearing their limbs off definitely warrants him speaking out. And Keller has been very vocal against what he believes is alleged systemic racism and, and lambasted very graciously Christians for not doing anything, not to speak is to speak, to not be political is to be political, except on the abortion of baby image bearers, of course. In this same New York Times piece, this is what he says, racism is a sin violating the second of the two greatest commandments of Jesus, to love your neighbor. The Bible commands to lift up the poor and to defend the rights of the oppressed. These are moral imperatives for believers from the Bible. This is what he's saying. For individual Christians to speak out against egregious violations of these moral requirements is not optional. For us to choose to speak out is not optional, meaning you have to speak out. Now, what is he addressing? Well, he's addressing... Uh, oppression against the poor and against African-Americans because he's addressing racism specifically. Now, are there any policies on the books right now that make it legal to kill people of color who are already born to just round up poor people and kill them? No. Now, is that me saying that there's no problems in America right now for other people? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's no policies in place that make it legal to round up human beings and kill them unless they're unborn, unless they're a baby, in which case... Keller's lips are sealed, zipped shut, unable to open it on behalf of image bearers of God in a womb that God entered human history in. In fact, in August of 2017, Keller preached a message which is available at Desiring God's website and YouTube channel entitled Racism and Corporate Evil, Racism and Corporate Evil. And he, he, he makes the case and points to examples of systemic evil or injustice and then makes the case that whether you're responsible for the system of injustice or not, you have a responsibility as a Christian to engage and help fight it and end that system of injustice. That, that, that's essentially the summary of it. And I, I watched the entire thing. Okay. So I'm not just, I'm not just telling you what I heard. I watched the entire sermon. That's the pitch that he's making. So a system of systemic injustice in which no policies make it legal to kill other human beings demands you as a Christian, whether you're responsible for the system or not to engage and help end it. But the actual system, systematic slaughter of unborn children, which is legal is not serious enough for you as a Christian who, even if you didn't make it happen to bear responsibility to end it, because he's silent on that form of systemic evil. And then at a 2016 conference or panel discussion on race, Keller says that having white skin makes you involved in injustice, even if you didn't actually do anything. Okay, and we're going to play you the brief clip and the most problematic statement that he makes from that conference. If you have that asset of white skin right now, historical asset, then you actually have to say, I, I didn't deserve this. And also, I'm to some degree, I'm the product of uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. So uh, the Bible actually says, yes, you do, you do, you are um, involved in injustice. And even if you didn't actually do it, therefore you have a responsibility, not just to say, well, you know, maybe if I get around to it, maybe we could do something about the poor people out there. No, you're, you're part of the problem. If you do actually let your, your understanding of responsibility be shaped by the Bible instead of American individualism. Wow, look at that. Isn't that incredible? If you have white skin, you bear responsibility for systems of injustice, even if you did not do anything. And those systems of racism or corporate evil, right? Institutional evil are serious enough, right? They're evil enough to Pastor Tim Keller to literally say, what does he say? Therefore, you have a responsibility not to just say, well, maybe I'll get around to it. No, you're part of the problem. Like you actually have to do something about it. <laughs> but if you, Christian, are not part of the problem of abortion, which is literally systemic 
evil and racism because 340,000 black babies are murdered by the abortion industry every year and Planned Parenthood kills more black unarmed lives in two weeks and the KKK lynched in a century. That's not serious enough to Pastor Tim Keller, the slaughter of baby image bearers, to tell you that even if you didn't cause it, you have a responsibility to end it. But he'll say that on systemic, alleged systemic evil or or racism, rather, even though none of those policies enable you or make it legal for you to kill those human beings. Unbelievable. Well, there you go. The school of wokeism for Pastor Tim Keller. We're going to get to exactly why I believe Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Timothy Keller have something in common next. But first, I want to introduce you to a new segment of this show. Today, we're launching the first segment of the uh, or the second segment, rather, of the 60 second pro-lifer. Okay, we launched this uh, last week. And we address the argument from rape. And this is just a little segment of the show we want to do. And then we're going to release this on YouTube and social media as well in a whole whole playlist for you of 60 second responses to pro-choice arguments, right? To just kind of give you the the quick, uh, if you will, um, quiver of of pro-life arrows or tools of thought to use to defend your pro-life beliefs, um, since I know it can be difficult and it can be stressful sometimes to always try to remember the right responses. So hopefully shortening it this way for you will be helpful. So let me get my phone and I'm going to time myself like I said I do last week. And I am not going to really prepare for these, just kind of give you my 60 seconds and then uh, you'll have these forever. We'll put these on social media and YouTube for you. Okay, so the argument today is from bodily autonomy, right? Her body, her choice. It's it's her body. So she should have the autonomy to decide what she does or does not do with it. And therefore, it's not our right to violate her bodily autonomy by telling her she can't get an abortion or passing laws to prevent her from getting an abortion. So here you go. One minute. How do we respond to the argument for abortion from bodily autonomy. Well, the first way we do that pro-lifer is by making the point that it's not your body. It's not her body, right? We know this because the science says that from the moment of conception, that baby is a distinct living and whole human being. So the body in your body is actually not your body. And we know this because pregnant women don't have double all of their organs, right? They don't have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains and two hearts. And if she's pregnant with a boy, the mother doesn't have a penis because the body in her body is not her body. Secondly, no one has complete bodily autonomy. This is why we have laws against rape and spousal abuse, because sometimes when people use their body in a way to harm or hurt others then the state has to step in and prevent that because that's morally wrong and it violates the natural rights of individuals. Abortion violates the autonomy of the child. And lastly, the uterus was not made for you. The uterus is the only thing in your body that wasn't made for you, but for someone else, the child that it was created to benefit and protect. There you go. So that's how we respond to the argument from bodily autonomy. Hopefully that's helpful for you and we'll make that available for you online as well. We're going to be right back with what Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Timothy Keller have in common. Stick around. So welcome back to the show. So, you know, maybe you're saying, well, Seth, I get it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a horrible justice with principles completely at odds with the American founding and should have never sat on the Supreme Court because she weaponized it for um, personal political gain. But, you know, I don't like what Tim Keller's doing necessarily, but like he, he did say abortion is wrong and a great evil. I mean, he needs to speak up more, but I mean, come on, what do these two have in common? Well, I, I'm going to make a case for exactly what they have in common and why it's really so dangerous for the church and our unborn children. By Keller's own standard and previous writing that we went through, by not speaking out against abortion and refusing to engage politically to end abortion, he is actually casting a vote for the status quo and supporting abortion by doing so. That's literally his words as it pertains to slavery, right, which he won't apply to abortion. But obviously he should and has a moral and spiritual requirement to do so because abortion and slavery are wrong for the same reasons. They dehumanize image bearers of God to justify their mistreatment or slaughter. So he is defending the political neutrality of Christians on abortion. But in doing so, Keller is actually defending the moral neutrality of killing babies in abortion because we know that Keller would never say – To Christians in the 1850s that you have liberty of conscience, brother, right? We know that he would not defend political neutrality because he's told us from his own words that I just read you that he would not defend political neutrality on the question of slavery and certainly not condoning the option of voting for the Democratic Party in the 1850, which was responsible for slavery, for goodness sake, right? And created the KKK as their own domestic political terrorist arm, for goodness sake. But 
on abortion, he is defending the political neutrality of Christians voting against abortion or for it. But if he did that on slavery, he would really be defending the moral neutrality of slavery, wouldn't he? Because he would be saying that the status of the slave and the value of the slave is not serious or important enough to warrant your political action and intervention to protect them. And he's doing the same thing with abortion. By defending political neutrality on abortion, Keller is actually defending moral neutrality because he's saying that that first and most important of all rights, life, need not be protected, need not be restored to the unborn, need not warrant your political intervention and voice to restore that right to the unborn. He is saying that the genocide of baby image bearers in abortion is not serious enough for Christians to use their political voice to end that genocide. So what do Keller and Ruth Bader Ginsburg have in common? Complicity. Complicity. In evil. One by commission and one by omission. Right? And if you're not familiar with these terms, I'll tell you what they mean. A sin of commission is a sin of action. It's you sin by doing something, right? Whatever that action is. A sin of omission is sin by not acting. It's sin by not doing what you ought to do, right? That's why the Bible says, whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So, Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously sinned by commission on the issue of abortion, by legislating abortion ideology from the bench and specifically and intentionally denying the right to life to unborn children. In fact, expanding their slaughter. So she sins by commission. Pastor Tim Keller sins by omission, by refusing to condemn abortion from the pulpit, by refusing to tell his church to get involved to end the genocide of baby image bearers, and by saying that you can opt for political neutrality on the genocide of baby image bearers. You can do that. That is a sin of omission. In fact, he takes it a step further, right? He doesn't just say, you can just not do anything and sin by omission on the issue of abortion. He says, you can actually vote for the other party because he says you have liberty of conscience, right? When it comes to voting, you have liberty of conscience so you can pick between parties. He's actually defending the sin of commission as an option for the Christian and voting for the Democratic Party. So what does Keller's betrayal of our unborn neighbors and image bearers mean? Well, Keller is choosing to be as silent on our genocide as the majority of German Christians were during their genocide. Randy Alcorn, one of the most pro-life pastors in the country that Timothy Keller has a lot to learn from, once put it this way. He said, we shake our heads in disgust at the German church's tolerance of one Holocaust while ignoring our own tolerance of another. That is exactly right. And I'm not going to be lectured by Pastor Timothy Keller on the liberty of conscience that we have to avoid ending the slaughter of image bearers in the womb while he condemns alleged systemic racism and he condemns Christians in the 19th century for not acting politically to protect our black brothers and sisters. I'm not going to be lectured by that. That's a double standard and it's disgusting and it has consequences because Pastor Tim Keller has one of the biggest platforms in the country as a pastor with his books his preaching, and his influence. He has a huge platform, and he is spreading spiritual conspiracy theories. Namely, that one class of image bearers don't deserve legal protection, and their, their value in the sight of God is really less than the slave. Because if it was the slave, then Keller would lambast you for not being political, because not being political is to be political, and you're, you're voting for the status quo. But if you want to protect baby image bearers in the womb and you say we as Christians actually have a moral and spiritual obligation to use our political voice, which other people died to give us to restore personhood and legal protection to the unborn, he'll tell you, shut up. Christians can't tell other Christians who they can or cannot vote for. Liberty of conscience, brother, freedom. See, I, I, I'm, the, I, I'm the, the woke pastor who's going to defend the conscience of my brothers and sisters. I'm actually the enlightened one because I realize that we really just need to focus on the gospel before elevating moral behaviors, right? Hopefully, you can see the inconsistency. What does Keller's betrayal of our unborn neighbors mean? It means that one of the biggest pastors in the country has nothing to say on the abortion of the lambs. There was a great article a while back called The Silence of the Shepherds on the Abortion of the Lambs. It means that Pastor Timothy Keller, politically speaking, is the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who walked by on the other side of the road to refuse helping the bleeding victim. The unborn is the greatest 
example of a bleeding victim in America today because we kill 3,000 of them every day and it is legal to do so and it is funded by your tax dollars. Am I saying there's not other bleeding victims? No, I'm not saying that, but the unborn is the greatest bleeding victim whose blood doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant Keller's political intervention. It means that virtually the only institution, the church, that can offer a moral defense of this republic is laying down her arms and refusing to pick up the political tools given to us by the giants on whose shoulders we stand and use those tools to protect unborn babies. What do I mean by the only institution able to offer a moral defense of this republic? The only reason why I or why anyone else should respect your natural right to life, liberty, and property is if those rights were given to you by someone whose authority and power stands far above any other person, right? And our founders, whether they were born again or not, were theists, and they believed in one God from whom all of our rights come. So the church is the institution that God entrusted with his mission, and it was the, it was the theological principles of Christianity namely that all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth that provided the philosophical soil for the foundation of this country, the idea of natural rights, the laws of nature and nature's God that are self-evident that we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or property. That is the worldview of Christianity, and it provided the foundation for this republic. That's what I mean when I say the church is the only institution that's able to offer a moral defense of this republic, of the ideals of the American founding. If anyone were to be the most likely to engage the forces that attack image bearers of God and seek to protect them, wouldn't it be the people of God who believe that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore infinitely valuable? And using these wonderful political tools that our forebears bled and died to give us, which puts power into the hands of the people so that we can use that political voice to defend the premises of Christianity, to defend the theological principles of Christianity, that we're all created equal because we're made in the image of God and that our, our rights flow from our humanity and we have them from the moment we begin to exist. And when did we begin to exist? The moment of conception. So to maintain human equality and the ideals of this republic and our own rights from the jurisprudence of people like Roger B. Taney and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we have to ground human rights in our shared human nature, which began at the moment of conception. But apparently that's lost on Tim Keller. That is completely lost. So one of the church's foremost pastors and foremost defenders of the gospel is laying down his political arms and saying it's fine. It's fine. And in relegating abortion to the sphere of political neutrality, he's really relegating it to the sphere of moral neutrality because these unborn image bearers are not valuable enough for you to engage politically, even though Keller would tell you that slaves are infinitely valuable enough for you to get involved politically. And he'll lambast you if you lived in the 1850s for not getting political and supporting the social status quo of slavery. This double standard has no place in the Church of Christ because it's the only institution that can offer a moral defense of this republic that provides the foundation, provided the foundation for us to purge the evil of slavery from our land and will provide the foundation for us to abolish abortion. Well, that's all we have time for, for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Okay, uh, give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps. We are weeks out from the most important election to the unborn. And we need your help to reach more people with these ideas. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in babyboyer.com. Check out some of my new blog posts on these and other topics. Sign up for my newsletter and view my speaking schedule if you want to come hear me live and local. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted. <laughs>